And Xanadu did Kublai Khan, a stately pleasure dome decree, where Alf the sacred river ran through caverns measureless to man down to a sunless sea. So twice five miles of fertile ground with walls and towers were girdled round, and there were gardens bright with sinuous rills where blossomed many an incense-bearing tree, and here were forests ancient as the hills, enfolding sunny spots of greenery. But oh, that deep romantic chasm which slanted down the green hill athwart a cedarn cover, a savage place, as holy and enchanted as air beneath a waning moon, was haunted by woman wailing for her demon lover. And from this chasm, with ceaseless turmoil seething, as if this earth in fast thick pants were breathing, a mighty fountain momently was forced, amid whose swift half-intermitted burst huge fragments vaulted like rebounding hail or chaffy grain beneath the thresher's flail. And mid these dancing rocks, at once and ever, it flung up momently the sacred river. Five miles meandering with a mazy motion, through wood and dale the sacred river ran, then reached the caverns measureless to man, and sank in tumult to a lifeless ocean. And mid this tumult Kubla heard from far ancestral voices prophesying war. The shadow of the dome of pleasure floated midway on the waves, where was heard the mingled measure from the fountain and the caves. It was a miracle of rare device, a sunny pleasure dome with caves of ice. A damsel with a dulcimer in a vision once I saw. It was an Abyssinian maid, and on her dulcimer she played, singing of Mount Abora. Could I revive within me her symphony and song to such deep delight would win me that with music loud and long I would build that dome in air, that sunny dome, those caves of ice, and all who heard should see them there and all cry, beware, beware, his flashing eyes, his floating hair, weave a circle round him thrice and close your eyes with holy dread, for he on honeydew hath fed and drunk the milk of paradise." Welcome all to this week's, well, technically last week's Christian Humanist Podcast. Uh, sorry for the one-week delay. Uh, I'm David Grubbs, professor of English at Central Christian College of Kansas in McPherson, Kansas, and I'm your host today. With me this week, like the previous weeks, except for last week because of technical things, is Michael Farmer, Assistant Professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. How are you, Michael? Oh, I'm pretty good. How are you, David? Uh, decent. Can't complain and shouldn't anyway. Um, also with us is Nathan Gilmore, Assistant Professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. How are you, Nathan? Oh, I am tired. I've got a, a sick family. My daughter's got the flu. My Both of my kids have had the stomach virus that's been going around North Georgia. And then mm. on top of all that, this is midterms week at Emanuel, so I, I I am myself kind of wishing I had myself a stately pleasure dome to retreat to. <laughs> or or pleasure drome, as a lot of websites on the internet apparently have it. Oh, really? So I oh, could, yeah. yeah could I... expect to find Master Blaster inside? Uh, wow. Possibly. <laughs> <laughs> Though I though I kept thinking of G.I. Joe, the terror drone, anyway. Oh, see, I I, I went to Mad Max. <laughs> yes, a stately Thunderdome decree. I made that <laughs> joke. Uh, anyway, well, before we proceed with uh, Kublai Khan, the next in our... Um, uh, do, do we have a name for this triptych? Is this like... 
British romantics. Okay. Like, like romantic. spotlight on the British romantics. Because we're only doing one apiece, right? Kind yeah, of yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Anywho's, this is the second one. And this week we're going to be hanging out with Samuel Taylor Coleridge and his Kubla Khan. Because Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner was too long and nobody's ever read Christabel. Uh, but before we do that, uh, have we got any feedback from listeners? Or oh, do we or ever? Michael, you want to lead off? Yeah, we have a we have an email from Ned. He's just writing in to tell us that he's enjoying the show quite a bit and to give you a few episode suggestions. I started listening a couple months ago on a tip from the gang over at Homebrewed, so apparently their recommendation did bring people to us. It's bearing Thank fruit. Thank you. I've been listening while I work, a very mind-numbing data entry position, but it gives me the chance to learn and think while doing things with my hands. I am getting close to being caught up, and I'm very much enjoying the depth and insight of analysis that you bring to your topics. Also, as a graduate of Bethel, I would like Michael to know that we are aware of Crown, though most of our attention is directed toward Northwestern because of their proximity to Bethel. When we do acknowledge Crown, it is the crazy, even more conservative school. (laughs) We heard stories of people getting in trouble for not having their feet on the floor when they were in a dorm room in mixed company. I don't know what goes on in the dorm rooms, and I don't want to know, so that may very well be so. Sometimes feet leave the floor. I have a few ideas for you that I think would make good podcasts that I would like to hear you talk about. Calvin and Hobbes. Not uh, John Calvin and Thomas Hobbes, but the Bill Watterson comic strip. Okay. I'm down with that. Yeah. I think uh, post- we could do that. Postmodernism, he said he's most interested in hearing about the different streams of philosophy that have emerged, but take it where you will. Yeah, I'd be interested in that. The Inklings, mm-hmm. which I, I don't know why it's taken us so long to do an Inklings episode. It seems like a natural. Well, we brought mm-hmm. them up in your friendship episode, remember? That's right, we did. It also doesn't help that, I don't know, I, I know you read them quite a bit, David, but I don't think Nathan and I spend that much time with the Inklings. Well, no, I mean, but... most people only hang out with two of them if they do, and Charles Williams never gets any love. <laughs> Mythology. So. He said this could be expanded into a trilogy covering the three cultures that have most influenced Western thought. Norse, right, Greco, now... Roman, and Egyptian. Now, Ned, we love you. We love that you're listening, but listeners don't get to call our trilogies. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, we usually don't call the trilogies until after we've done the first episode. They're very rarely planned out in advance. Yeah, I know, I know. I, <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to make them sound like these grand plans, though. Well, some, sometimes they are. Federalist Papers, that, that, that was a grand plan. Oh, true enough, true enough. But usually it's more delight. We, you know, we have an episode and we're like, that was so much fun. Let's do that again, twice. Uh, he says, personality tests such as the Myers-Briggs, Enneagram, and the like. Oh, man. I, we could all do our uh, love language, guys. <laughs> okay, I, yeah, if, if we did that episode, one of you two would have to be the cheerleader because that's one of those topics I am incapable of talking about in a balanced manner. Yeah, me too. We may as well talk about learning styles in terms of things that are going to make me rant. <laughs> now, now, see, I, I could actually be the advocate for uh, Gardner's theory of learning styles, or multiple intelligences, pardon me. Yeah. Well, I don't know. It might be kind of a, 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 a fun thing to talk about, you know, personality test and watch you come unglued and see if we could somehow make that work in some kind of meta fashion. <laughs> oh, shoot. Which, which, pers- which personality test best revealed the tension inside of Nathan Gilmore? <laughs> we could just 
let Nathan write his own personality test. <laughs> yeah, hi. <laughs> he is also Maybe curious. He's also curious as to whether we've read Doug, Doug Paget's new book, A Christianity Worth Believing. I have not. No, I haven't either. I, I've got one of those, so I haven't. You already have it. a Christianity Worth Believing. <laughs> oh, okay. Sorry, oh, that, David. Yeah, do you really yeah, have that, a copy that, of that? Yeah, okay, I'm just no, 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 no. That, that was a joke, nor was it meant to be any kind of critical assessment of, of Doug Paget's <laughs> book. I have no idea about what the content is, but I'm sorry, the title just sort of put the ball on the tee, and I had to swing. Anyway, thanks for go. thanks for writing in, Ned. I suspect uh, several of those episode suggestions will eventually. Oh, absolutely, episodes. yeah. They're, I like these ideas. I really do. Many of them. It was like, how, how, how have we not done that yet? I can't believe we haven't done a postmodernism <laughs> episode. Right. So, so Ned, after coming over, you know, from Trip and Bo's suggestion, already knows us better than we know ourselves. That's wonderful. Well, except except that he suggested we do personality tests, which. Well, okay. <laughs> no, no one bats a thousand, Michael. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> we could take personality tests and like read them. Which X-Man are you? (laughs) (laughs) I know which one you are, Nathan. You're Cyclops. No, actually, when I took that (laughs) that personality test, and I have, I came up as the Beast. Well, that also makes sense. Really? I guess. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm the intellectual who goes crazy and starts breaking things on occasion. (laughs) I think I got Magento. Not Magneto, Magento. He just wears a lot of pink. Oh God! Heaven help us. Uh, we also got what may be my favorite listener email ever from oh. Michael Dowling. Oh. I'm just going to read it in its entirety because there would be no point in truncating this. Wait, the entirety? Yeah. Uh, okay, go for it. Yeah, this is this is Michael Dowling. This is not Hrothgar. We'll talk about him here in a minute. Uh, oh, right, 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 right. Dear host, he write writes. Have you ever wanted to punch Nathaniel Hawthorne in the mouth? <laughs> I do. I got the audiobook of The House of Seven Gables, having some idea that it was a ghost story. I don't know why, but I was expecting something atmospheric, something entertaining and crisply written. Something like an M.R. James story, only longer. The story may be good if I can bear to keep listening, but the man's style is so bad that it's painful to listen to. I feel mm. like I want to do violence to Hawthorne for subjecting you to it. It would be kind to call the writing ponderous. He makes Sir Walter Scott seem brisk and to the point. He seems to work on the basis of using the largest and least natural word, however inappropriate, and he never uses one word where ten will do. When he attempts humor, it's like a man trying to dance in hobnailed boots. Anyway, I sat through the heavy-handed description of the chickens. I endured the leaden, repetitive discourse on the barrel organ figures. But even that wasn't enough pain for him to inflict. He then got going on the monkey, and he quotes, Sometimes, moreover, he made personal application to individuals, holding out his small black palm and otherwise plainly signifying his excessive desire for whatever filthy lucre might happen to be in anyone's pocket. At that point, I switched off. Punch him? I wanted to kill him. Regards, Michael. <laughs> now, Michael, uh, what was I, and I'm talking to Michael, my co-host, was I uh, absent for the House of Seven Gables episode? No, I, I, as far as I know, we, we've never mentioned that novel. I mean, I guess we've talked about Hawthorne a few times. I agree. Yeah, a his, little. His style is overwrought. Uh, I, I, House of Seven Gables, not my favorite book. No. 
you're, you're right that he he loves his long inappropriate words. He's he's kind of the opposite of the the Wordsworth dictum we mentioned a few weeks ago. Yeah, pretty much. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I uh, I loved that email. So, <laughs> listeners, you're welcome to write in the Christian Humanist at gmail dot com. But no, you're never going to top that one. <laughs> yeah, right, my, when Michael also... Dowling attempts humor, it is not like a man dancing in hobnail boots. <laughs> no. That that worked. That made me think of Poe. If you if you if you've never read Poe's supposedly humorous short stories, that's a very good description that I may steal for next time I have to teach Poe. Yeah, that's not mm. bad. That's not bad. Uh, we also, I'm not going to read this at length, but we got a couple lengthy and very interesting uh, blog comments on our Wordsworth episode from Hrothgar, uh, who has been commenting pretty regularly on the blog, and we love when our listeners do that. Uh, I'll, I'll just encourage you, if you've not read Hrothgar's comments, go ahead over there. Uh, Charles H., our friend from Saskatchewan, has also been commenting on the blog. Uh, he suggested that we do some more poetry-themed episodes. I think that's certain something we can serve up without too much of a problem. Mm-hmm. Gentlemen? Yeah. Absolutely. And he also suggested a book by Roger London, and I want to go ahead and say that I'll, I'll go ahead and repeat what I said in the blog comment. The only Roger London book I've read was his book for the Coalition of Christian Colleges and Universities called Faith Through the Eyes of Learning. No. Literature, through the, Literature through the Eyes of Faith. There we go, golly. I blundered that, <laughs> didn't I? Um, but the way that Charles describes this other book by London, it sounds like it might be interesting. Uh, so, you know, Charles, if I get around to it, I might find that book sometime and read it. Right now, though, I'm pretty well buried this semester already, so uh, it'll be a little bit. Are there any other blog commenters and or uh listener feedback we want to address guys i was trying to tee you up but you didn't take it uh charles also wanted us to do a poe episode oh, oh yeah which i complained about because what? yeah I hate yeah po. but uh, are you are you okay david do you have to go to the I'll, bathroom i'll make you do a poe episode that'd <laughs> well, be awesome well charles you may get your poe episode after all i'm gonna make you talk about xing the paragraph oh god <laughs> <laughs> Could be worse. Could be four beasts or whatever it is. What's the, what's the, it's four beast, one head or something. I can't remember. Oh, the camo leopard. Oh my gosh. Oh, he's, he's, oh, oh he's just the worst. <laughs> he, he's just the worst. I'm, I'm sorry. He's like a bad Tim Burton movie. He's, like, oh, he's like a clove cigarette filled with dishwashing detergent. <laughs> Well, at any rate, to to wrap wrap up user feedback, we've also been getting comments on the blog from Paul Schliefer, I think. I can't remember if he sent in a pronunciation of his name or not, so I'm going to keep mispronouncing it. Uh, So again, listeners, keep commenting on the blog. We love to read what you have to say about our episodes, Uh, you know, whether it's recent episodes or as Paul has recently done, going back into the back catalog and adding content to what's already there. The Christian Humanist Project is definitely a glor- gloriously and joyfully Web 2.0 venture. It's made up not only of what we three guys do on the podcast, but also what you all do responding to us. So keep it coming. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, um, I, I, I'm glad you guys were paying attention. We had a blizzard in Kansas, so I, I was somewhat unplugged. 
over the past week or so. Was it your first? So. Uh, yes, my first, my first Midwestern blizzard, yes. And did your power stay on? Power stayed on. Well, that so makes, I guess that it... makes all the difference. <laughs> Couldn't get in and out of the driveway, though. That was that was rough. But, you know, it was fine. It was cool. Had had a couple of days off. It was fine. <sighs> Anywho, um, Coleridge. Yeah, Coleridge and Kublai Khan. Well, um, if you listen to the beginning of this, and I don't know why you wouldn't have, uh, you heard the <laughs> poem. Um, it's... Uh, Pretty iconic. Uh, do people encounter this typically in high school anymore? Is it, is that? I mean, I read it. I read it in high school. Okay, I did not. I, I didn't run across this one until college. Okay, okay. It, it used to be one of those kind of standard things for high school, like "Oh, Captain, my Captain." But I, mm-hmm. I, I, I think things have drifted since you know the nineteen twenties when I went to school, <laughs> or at least when my textbooks came from. Um. Anyway, one of the most interesting things that about this poem, um, I think, is that Kublai Khan actually came published with its backstory. Um, before people read the poem, they had to read Coleridge's account of the writing of the poem. So, Michael, uh, could you could you tell us that backstory? Well, uh, I'll try to give it to you very quickly. Uh, Coleridge had become addicted to laudanum. Which was kind of a cure-all, is is my understanding, in the late 18th, early 19th century. It involved opium in alcohol. Yay. I'm not sure they still use laudanum anymore, to be honest. But uh, (laughs) So he'd become addicted to this, and he had taken some, I suppose, and he was reading a book. um, Purchases Pilgrimage, a book I've never heard of. But he was reading it, and it, and it, it contained the sentence... Here the Khan Kubla commanded a palace to be built, and a stately garden thereunto, and thus ten miles of fertile ground were enclosed with a wall. And then, as he's reading that, he falls asleep and dreams um, that he has written two to three hundred lines of a poem. But he doesn't dream the words, he dreams these images that kind of fly up to him, and he realizes that he's written this incredibly long poem. And then when he wakes up, he starts to write it down. And what we have is his attempt to write it down, but somebody came to his door, and he had to go deal with the person who came to his door, and he was not able to finish the poem. So what we have is a fragment of what he assumed was going to be a 300-line poem uh, brought on by this opium dream. Hmm. <laughs> so that's the story. And, and I mean, as you said, I, th- I, I think more people probably know the story of Kublai Khan than know either the historical figure Kublai Khan or the actual poem, because uh, it's it's by far the most famous thing about the poem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, mean, it, it, I mean, what role do you think that plays in people's general kind of, I, I guess, I guess, perception of romantic poets or poetry in, in general? I mean, my students always seem to show up in uh, English Comp 2, which is which is sort of an intro to lit. Uh, at the University of Georgia, they would always show up with the notion that poets were druggies and short story writers were drunks, and it was mainly ba- mainly based on Poe and Coleridge. Yeah, it's true. Although the degree to which <laughs> Poe was actually a drunk is up for debate too. There, yeah, there I go defending him. <laughs> but I, I mean, yeah, certainly it, it fits into this conception that the 19th century was a century for uh, 
for drug addicts writing. I remember I remember hearing that uh, Lewis Carroll, for example, was on heroin. I think they told us. I don't know what it actually was that he was on heroin throughout the composition of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, and that J. M. Barrie was on something. That, I know that's twentieth century. That J. M. Barrie was on something when he was writing uh, Peter Pan. Because mm. so. fantasy is only possible if you're tripping. Right. Right. <laughs> so, so yeah, I mean, it's it, the story. The story is more popular than the poem, certainly, and has has probably been more influential than the poem, and not for anything good. Uh, I mean, honestly, my favorite part of the backstory is someone knocks at the door and he forgets half of it. I mean, I, yeah, you know, I, and you know, maybe maybe it's just the you know the through line from Samuel Taylor Coleridge to Keith Richards, but that whole you know druggy artist thing i mean just it, it gives me a chuckle even if it has stained the literary world yeah but if it was keith richards he would have forgotten the other uh, 200 lines when a coconut fell out of a tree and hit him in the head you know? <laughs> <laughs> awesome well we okay so we know the trippy story and the opening's pretty pretty memorable and sonorous. I keep I keep wanting to do, you know the guy you know the the guy that did the voiceover at the beginning of of the uh, of Arnold's Conan the Barbarian movie. I've never seen that movie. You know what I'm talking yeah. about, Nathan? Yeah. yeah, I don't know who was it that did that voiceover. Is uh, it a Japanese would... actor named Mako. He also did the voice of oh, Aku fascinating in, okay. in Samurai Jack. Anyway, I always I'm always imagining the opening lines in his voice. um but did kubla khan in xanadu a stately pleasure dome decree i mean is 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 this history i mean i i i thought i'd heard of somebody with a name at least close to that yes and honestly when i first saw the show notes david my first reaction was why should i care but because david (laughs) you're in the driver's seat today i did go and run down this (laughs) historical background (laughs) Uh, and in fact, yes, uh, Kublai Khan, the grandson of the great Genghis Khan, uh, and who was also the first recognized emperor in the Yan dynasty. Did I pronounce that right, David? Oh, darned if I know. Okay, well, we'll say the Yan dynasty. Uh, did, in fact, build a summer palace at Chandu, uh, which gets rendered and sort of Latinized into Xanadu in this book that Coleridge was reading. Uh, so, yes, I mean, you know, this was... Uh, an account that originally comes to Europe through Marco Polo's writings uh, and then later on gets picked up by uh, the pilgrimage book that Michael cited earlier. And I don't have that on my screen right now. I'd be able to say the name of that pilgrimage. Samuel purchases pilgrimage. And so, you know, this was uh, something that was relatively well known uh, among literate circles in Europe uh, and it would have been their picture of sort of the supreme oriental monarch. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, in, in a very straightforward sense, David, uh, Kublai Khan did indeed decree that a stately pe- pleasure dome should happen. And it was indeed at Chandu. Now, the rest of this with like the spitting ice caves and stuff, I'm I'm it's guessing that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. (laughs) No, I mean, as far as I can tell, most of that stuff uh, is part of the opium dream. Now, what we do know about the Xanadu Palace is that it did have an enclosed area uh, where Kublai Khan would 
basically go pleasure hunting. I mean, he went falconing in there. It was sort of a private game preserve. Uh, and, you know, it was, you know, one of the true glories of that Chinese dynasty. You know, it was something that when Marco Polo saw it, he knew that that had to be one of the wonders that he would write about when he, you know, returned word of this glorious place to Europe. Hmm. So it seems like this poem is, is, is really kind of connected to, uh, well, the, the Western Europe's acquaintance with uh, with the cultures of the Far East that this is this is tapped into that, that whole tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I, I I hate I hate to to invoke him, but is it helpful at all to bring Orientalism into this conversation? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not all that familiar with Edward Said. I couldn't tell you much of what Edward said. So, oh, uh, good lord. <laughs> Yeah, you should, you I, should I really, be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> uh, I, I'm well beyond shame at this point, Michael. <laughs> uh, but as far as that goes, David, I mean, one of the things that is definitely going on here is this idea that the East uh, is this place where, you know, a kind of enchantment and this different kind of fusion between, you know, the world of biological wonder on one hand and then the world of grand elaborate civilization on the other mix in ways that are certainly alien to what a european would be familiar with uh so i mean definitely i mean it's playing into that as far as you know particular saeed theories that it would interact with i've not actually read orientalism and i you know in midterm week no i didn't have time to read that book before the podcast uh, David, I mean, no, I didn't, much, I didn't expect you to, <laughs> I mean, how much of that sphere of cultural criticism are you familiar with? I mean, what sorts of things might I have seen beyond what I'm familiar with if I had known it better? Um, I, I, I guess what I was, what I was, and, and this, and this is something that, I, that I'm genuinely, genuinely curious about and haven't, you know, haven't poked around is, uh, you know, one of, one of the things Said is is concerned about is the way that um, different uh, productions of art, travelers' tales, uh, sun, you know, all those sorts of things sort of work together to shape a Western notion of what the East was. That mm-hmm. was, you know, according to Said, you know, radically different from you know from what from what was actually true, right. and that you know, and that 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 has shaped in various ways the relations of uh of western europe with well the middle and the far east um mm-hmm. in perceptible ways um you know i'm not gonna i'm not gonna cite chapter and verse and i think you know i i i think in that general sense this you know i i know that when i when i'm watching an old like well when i'm watching a kung fu movie like uh curse of the golden flower or you know, House of Flying Daggers, or um, well, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Um, I feel like I'm in the kind of world that Coleridge is talking about, mm-hmm. and I have a hard time telling the difference between that and like <laughs> actual China. Well, that's, <laughs> right, that right. is exactly that is exactly Said's point in Orientalism, which is that the Orient is something different from the countries. Mm-hmm. that actually make up the Orient. The Orient is an idea mm-hmm. created almost entirely by the West as a way to define themselves by the negative. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So 
Coleridge implicitly compares all these bizarre druggy images of the Orient <laughs> to the reasonable West. And I mean, I'll get to that in a minute as mm -hmm. well. But And you'll also notice that he lumps a number of... Uh, a, a number of Eastern countries into this single thing. What's this Abyssinian maid doing? She's from <laughs> Ethiopia. Why is she, why is mm -hmm. she in Xanadu in China singing a song about this mountain that doesn't seem to actually exist? <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, so, so not only, not only is the Orient different from the West in useful ways for mm -hmm. the West, it's also, hegemonic it's 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 all the same not hegemonic mm -hmm. uh homogeneous right. is the word i'm looking for yeah there you go there that's you the, go that's the post post-structuralist word i was trying to find <laughs> with it when them h words yeah post-structuralist mad libs yeah i believe saeed i believe i believe saeed hits kubla khan briefly in orientalism although i don't mm -hmm. remember exactly okay. what he says all right, all right, David. I had a, actually had a follow up question for you. I mean, insofar as you're familiar with Saeed, and insofar as you're comfortable answering this, um, is there any connection that you see between the sort of late medieval conception of the world of fairy and the world of the Orient that develops really, I mean, out of that high medieval mentality? Um, absolutely. Okay. Um, because, well, for, for, for one thing, if you read um, old medieval, if you read medieval um, travel accounts and uh, sort of cosmographia, sort of uh, b books that, that, that talk about the whole world and, and within the context of the cosmos, um, the earthly paradise, um, you know, where Eden still was, was supposed to be just beyond India or just beyond... Um, you know, Cathay, you know, depending on which reader, who, who, who you're reading at the time. Um, mm -hmm. There was this idea that, um, that the, you know, the, that the earthly paradise, the place where things are perfect and wonderful was in, you know, an Orient land. Right. Um, also in travel narratives, you had, uh, you know, the character of Prester John, who's supposed to have been alternately either in, Abyssinia or in India slash Cathay around around in there and um, a lot of the stuff that uh, sort of describes Prester John um, sets him up as a very uh, otherworldly kind of figure and his kingdom is an otherworldly kind of kingdom mm -hmm. um, so yeah and also uh, the east is where you know the kinds of monsters that show up in legends were supposed to still be griffins lived out there, you know dragons lived out there, mm. unicorns that's where they were. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I think all of those things, um, all that makes sense. Now, part of it too, it continued on into the 18th and 19th centuries, because some of the first acquaintance that um, I guess modern Europe had with the East in terms of popular culture was in folk tales. Um, you know, kind of, Europe had its big folklore mania 
all right, for its own for its own folklore, but it was also gathering folklore of other lands. And so you can find, you know, in the 1800s, these books called like fairy stories from Japan or mm, okay. or enchanted tales from from China. And if this is what someone grew up with, that's the only working knowledge they have of the lands <laughs> from which those stories came. You know, mm. you know, whereas they could read Grimm's fairy tales and think these are the fairy tales Germans tell, but then they yeah. might actually meet actual Germans. Right. I've known too many Germans. <laughs> <laughs> so so to, to kind of counter the weight of Grimm, you know, they don't think, oh, you Germans, you're constantly fighting trolls, right? <laughs> well, they don't, but I do. Yes. <laughs> Not the Internet variety. Um, anywho's. Yeah, I, 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 I think there is a connection. There's some way that I think the geographic um, distance of the Orient from Western Europe um, helped, uh, helped, it, helped it keep a kind of enchantment that, uh, that wasn't possible for the familiar, you know, the familiar uh, chunks of the world. Okay. Ah, anyway, that's my stab at it. <laughs> Um, shifting gears, um, Michael, uh, one of the better known, uh, passages of Coleridge's literary criticism, if you could call it that, um, his biographica, biographia literaria, which, um, I, I, I remember when I took literary criticism and theory, we, we, we read a chunk of that, um, just before we read Matthew Arnold, I think, um, he explains his role in, in that book in the production of the lyrical ballads with, uh, with Wordsworth. So what was Coleridge's task in lyrical ballads as opposed to Wordsworth? I've uh, actually, I'd never read any part of the biographica, biographia literaria until you made me read it for this question. So, <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so if you've ever read Wordsworth's preface to lyrical ballads and thought, none of that describes anything I know about Samuel Taylor Coleridge, there's a very good reason for that, which is the two of them apparently had initially conceived of that book as showing the two sides of the poetic imagination. And mm -hmm. so Word, Wordsworth's poems were supposed to be what he had described them as being they were supposed to be these ordinary events suffused with a sort of magic but you know other than that completely ordinary completely natural and in the language of the people and then Coleridge's poems were supposed to be the opposite they were supposed to mm -hmm. be supernatural poems using exaggerated language and you know this was supposed to show you the uh, the breadth of the poetic imagination mm -hmm. and what happened um is that the second edition of Lyrical Ballads came out and Wordsworth's name was the only one on it. I mean, I, I believe it was first published anonymously. Mm -hmm. But Coleridge talks about it and he says that the second edition didn't have Coleridge's name on it. And part of the problem was that Wordsworth wrote so much faster than Coleridge that there were way more Wordsworth poems than Coleridge poems in that volume. But, but, so, so his name didn't end up on the second edition and he found that Wordsworth had attached this preface to the front of the, uh, to fr the front of the book that didn't say anything at all about Coleridge's poetry. 
and mm -hmm. set out a theory of poetry that wouldn't work with Coleridge's poetry. And then, to make matters worse, the people who read it misunderstood it and thought that instead of Wordsworth just justifying his own work was making a statement about what all poetry at all times, everywhere, should be. And so, <laughs> so uh, Coleridge got left out, I think is the way he feels. And I, I know their relationship cooled. I don't think... Mm -hmm. I don't think they ever had a, a complete break, or at least they they certainly hadn't at that time. But um, so I, I do think this this hurt Coleridge in some way. Mm -hmm. um, and certainly Wordsworth is the one who ended up being the paragon of romantic poetry in the nineteenth century. Mm. I mean, nowadays I suspect we're more apt to think of uh, Byron, who of mm -hmm. course we're not doing in this in this uh, series. But so. Um, I do think if you look at what he says the other half of the poems were supposed to be, Kublai Khan works pretty much as an example. I mean, it's it's clearly supernatural-ish. It's clearly... He says if it's not supernatural, it's at least romantic. Mm -hmm. um, although he doesn't define what that word means, but he goes ahead and uses it again in the second stanza, in the second stanza of Kublai Khan. So I think he's actually sticking to his guns fairly well. It's just that we forget that Wordsworth wasn't trying to speak for Coleridge in that preface, and so um, the bio Biographia Literaria, in part, sets that straight. Yeah. Now, now uh, Kublai Khan doesn't come from lyrical ballads. No. Right. It's it's about 15 years later. Have either of you read Coleridge's poems in lyrical ballads? Well, Ancient Mariner is one of them. Ah. Yeah. And and if I remember correctly, it was one of the ones that was better known out of the collection. Interesting, but there are fewer Coleridge poems in that collection. Is that right? Oh yeah, much fewer, much fewer. Yeah. Um, and 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 really, if you're if you're if you start lyrical ballads with Wordsworth's essay, and you start, you know, I, I'm a literature professor. I want to talk about. I want to teach lyrical ballads today. So I'm going to start with the essay, and then I'm going to look for the poems in in the collection that best bring out the points the essay is making. Yeah, Coleridge mm. is not going to be on the menu. Right. Yeah. Which, I mean, you know, that kind of stinks for him, because he was trying to do something different. Something complementary, something that, when combined with what Wordsworth was doing, was supposed to give you a full vision of what poetry could do. Mm-hmm. And instead, because of essentially not a printing error, but a printing decision in the in the preface being a preface instead of an afterword, which it became in later editions, mm -hmm. uh, Coleridge gets thrown to the curve. Well, mm -hmm. and in, and in Wordsworth deciding that he's going to fully document his own notions about his side of the project and leave out that there was this whole other side. Yeah, you wonder if he asked Coleridge if he would like to contribute a preface as well. And Coleridge <laughs> never got around to it? Yeah, I mean, because I would believe that, although he doesn't say it in uh, in the biographia. I would believe that, that Wordsworth said, hey, why don't you write one too? And right. know, Coleridge fell asleep Coleridge on said, chair. All right. Yeah, exactly, and then someone <laughs> knocked at the door and he forgot to. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, when... Um, when I first encountered uh, this poem in, well, in a Britlet survey, um, the 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 professor that that that, that taught this 
brought out this passage out of Biographia Literaria and set it alongside of Wordsworth's um, prologue to lyrical ballads to, to kind of bring that side of, of, you know, of the project out. And the, the way he said it, if I remember correctly, was that Wordsworth was supposed to make the real seem magical and Coleridge was supposed to make the magical seem real. Mm. And, and that, and, and that stuck with me as, you know, as, as a, a, a really nice way to say, you know, this is, this is what poetry or what literature can do. It can, it can it can make the magical the the real seem magical or the magical seem real, and mm, that's good. Yeah, I, I, I liked it also because it's chiasmic. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we, we've kind of talked about you know how this fits in into the the lyrical ballads project, but um, you know Coleridge is counted among the Romantic poets, and if we're going to you know start talking about truisms about romantic poets, which I think we, we reflected somewhat on that in our last episode, Nathan. Um, mm. One of those truisms is that the romantics are poets of nature. So can we see any of that in Kubla Khan? Because um, whenever I leave Kubla Khan, you know, my, my, my biggest impression is, beware, beware. Yes, yes, and I mean the 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 bizarre prophetic figure there at the end, um, and you know the uh, the nature imagery in this one. I mean, just leaves me baffled whenever I sit and try to contemplate it because it is a study in tensions. You know, is it is the the sunny plains and the icy caves. Uh, it is the violent churning waterfall that leads into the lifeless ocean. Uh, it's one of those things that, you know, I'm, and I, I'm, te I'm tempted to say, but it's because I, I feel like I might be a lazy literary critic, uh, that this is a picture of nature that lends itself more to allegory than to uh, sort of picturesque reflection. Mm. Uh, and, you know, like I said, I mean, it, it's that, and obviously to call it Nietzschean would be uh, anachronistic, but I mean, it's the sort of thing that Nietzsche talks about when he talks about that tension between the Apollonian and the Dionysian, right? It's the stately pleasure dome, very ordered. And then it is the, you know, violent turmoil seething, you know, and then, you know, the earth is breathing in fast pant in, in thick pants, uh, which is a funny phrase. I, I, I can't deny, uh, but then again, I, I also lose it about line three when the sacred river is called Alf. I, I grew up. <laughs> hey, no problem. <laughs> yeah. <there you> go. <laughs> um, but at any rate, uh, you know, I, I think it's a set of nature images that lends itself to allegory. I mean, what would you guys add to that? Michael? It, it, yeah, I mean, it's such a fantastic natural landscape. It, it reminds me of, like, I, I, I see it as computer-generated in a weird way. Mm. It, 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 it's that sort of uh, uncanny, where, where it almost looks real. And I, I wonder what people in the generations before computer graphics would have uh, would have thought of it mm -hmm. there's something disney worldish about it 
Well, it, it's, it seems to be a landscape full of full of landmarks, so to speak. Mm-hmm. You know, look, it's the chasm and the giant fountain, and here's the ice caves. Um, you know, it, I, I don't know how much how much bad fantasy you guys read, but you know, at some point, wander into the fantasy section of a Barnes and Noble, or better yet, the the uh, uh, the YA lit version of that over in that section and start flipping to the fronts of the books and you see these maps of fantasy lands that are just chock full of amazing landmarks with picturesque names. And reading this poem feels like looking at one of those maps. Look, the dome, the the caves of ice. Look, the sacred river. Look, the spewing fountain thing. You know? Look, the demon lover, lover, wailing woman. Which he he references as though we knew what they were. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and that, that it it has that that feel to me of 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 fantasy where you've got these mundane characters, you know, saying, "Oh no, we've gone to the mountains of Merc." Right, right. You know. <laughs> Well, and it also reminds me of, and I, I can't remember if this was in, is there a text in this class or if it was another Stan Fish book or just another essay on postmodernism, but the the postmodern poet whose lines in a lyric poem were brief phrase descriptions of pictures in a photo album. Uh, and, you know, of course, the, the postmodern thing about it is that as the reader, you don't have access to that album. So all you get is this stream of impressions. Mm. Well, that's I, I think that's a I mean, you, you, you this this poem could be called the stream of impressions <laughs> or the impressions that stuck after I woke up from my dream. <laughs> <laughs> and then I saw this other thing. It was amazing. Which well, which kind of leads us back to to the backstory. Um, I mean, which leads us to see this as, as incomplete. So if we if if we think of it as you know this is a series of fragments, um, you know we're kind of moving ahead with a reading that the that the the prologue um, or the the backstory, whatever you want to call it, to the poem uh, sort of prepares us for. Yeah. Um, now this was interesting. I took a course on the Romantic lyric, and my professor. Uh, in that course, Kyle Grimes, peace be upon him, at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, uh, suggested that the poem and the backstory could or even should be read as a complete work, even though it says it's incomplete, that we should read it as complete. Um, I, I found that interesting, and I wrestled with it, but I didn't come to any you know, fixed conclusions at the time, so I'm going to drop this in your lap, Michael. Um does reading this as complete or incomplete make a difference to how we read the poem? I think so. And I, I'm actually going to take it one further than your professor and say the poem should be read as complete and we should forget about the backstory as much as we can. Ooh, I'm, okay. not, I'm not usually quite that new critical, but I think the I think the backstory is in some ways the least interesting part of this poem. Okay. Um, and and the, the the poem itself should be able if if it stands at all it should be able to stand on its own without you knowing that it was inspired by that book and a uh, spoonful of laudanum. 
the only reason I can see that you would want that backstory is if you're some sort of uh, psychoanalyst critic and, and you want to mm. make a point about the power of the uh, unconscious. Mm. Which, you know, that a legitimate point to make, but in terms of just reading the poem, I don't see how the backstory helps at all. Mm. How it gives you any information. How seeing the poem as incomplete really helps anything at all. Because the poem frankly is complete because nothing else was ever written on it and nothing else was going to be written on it i mean this this is this is what you have it it's a co- it's a cohesive whole it doesn't feel cut off right i mean if you didn't know this poem was incomplete you would never say that poem's incomplete would mm-hmm. you am i am i way off it's hard to say because i've always known it and i'm, I'm thinking of the norton anthology of English literature where I first encountered it, it had this just cumbersome apparatus, you know, indicating the incompleteness of the poem. So it's hard for me to think of it apart from the backstory, honestly. It, it, I I just feel like the backstory makes this less a poem than a topic for a cocktail, a cocktail party conversation. Mm -hmm. It, it, It turns it into gossip. It's an interesting backstory, but can't we just read the poem as a poem? I mean, m- most of most of what we've said about Orientalism and about uh, nature it doesn't have anything to do with with the circumstances of composition. So, right, right, and yeah. the imagistic quality of the nature scenes. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's definitely internal to the text. I'll and, agree. And the the experience of reading the poem, what it does to you when you read it, doesn't have anything to do with the story. I don't think. Mm-hmm. Doesn't make me yep. feel like I'm in an opium dream. Not exactly. Not that I've ever had an opium dream. <laughs> maybe, maybe Lacking a frame of reference for that. Maybe that's my problem. I've been drunk. You know, I, I know what I know what it's like to be. Uh, I know what it's like to be out of your mind. So, mm-hmm. but and, and this this poem doesn't feel like that to me. So, I mean, I, I say let's jettison the backstory or or or. When we when we give this to our students, let them read the poem and then tell them the backstory after they've read it. Mm-hmm. Well, do you think it makes a difference that Coleridge? Well, well, one at when he when he circulated it, kind of among his friends, he circulated it along with the account. Yeah, he seems to, he seems written. to think the backstory is part of the uh, part of the. And poem. yeah, and when it was printed. His his account of it was was done first. I mean, so and and if you I mean if you pull it up in the Norton, that's there. You know, Kublai Khan or a vision in a dream, a fragment. The following fragment is here published at the request of a poet of great and deserved celebrity, and then it goes on with the account. And in Coleridge's words, I think I I think he made a mistake in doing it that way. Frankly, okay. A lot of his friends did too. <laughs> well, good. I'm a good company. <laughs> um, do, do you yeah, disagree, the, David? Do you do you think that can, can you make the case for the backstory being an integral part of the poem? Um, the 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 best that I could the best that I could do is that the at, at the end of it where you've got this um the figure who. Uh, seems to be, uh, I, I think, a, a, a poet figure, you know, that, you know, that it, he wishes he could hear the song again, and he would build the dome in the air, the sunny dome, and all who heard should see them there, and all would cry, beware, beware, his flashing eyes, his floating hair. 
and and the idea of back away from the poet he's having his visions mm-hmm. is is kind of how I read the end of that. Um, and but in 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 the backstory, what we have is the story of a poet interrupted. You know, <laughs> someone uh, someone touched the poet having his vision, and the vision went away. In, in, in which in which in which case the poem's not so much the product of the dream as the product of the interruption. Right. Mm. Do we know that he left off when the door knocked at that at the last line of the poem? I really don't know because the the way the way that I've read it is that that last bit is something that he tacked on as a. I don't know uh, when, when he came back and realized he couldn't read he he couldn't write anymore. Because but then, because if I'm that if, biography, if that's true, the backstory becomes important. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know, and that's the problem. We have we have a, we have the manuscript of this, not we, but I mean that the, the manuscript of this exists, but I don't know that there's any kind of indication on there. You know, and at this point, some guy knocked on his door, and at this point, he came back and sat down. Right. Know? So, eh. I I just I just feel like if if the poem gets subsumed into the backstory, if 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 they're together, and you read the backstory first, and then you read the poem, and you you think, oh, what a shame he didn't finish it. The poem becomes a kind of epiphenomenon, and and the 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 real the real thing is the story. Mm-hmm. And and I don't I don't know why that bothers me so much. Like I said, I'm not a new critic. I don't I don't I don't usually feel like nothing else should be taken into consideration. But the mm. it's just the dominance of the backstory I think in the public imagination about this poem that bothers me so much. It feels too much like a biographical reading of the poem itself. Yeah, well and frankly, David, would we be reading this poem if the backstory weren't compelling? Is, is this is this really one of the great poems of the nineteenth century? They didn't think so at the time. I, I I think I think the backstory has elevated it to be something that it's not. Mm. Hmm. Interesting. I don't know. I mean, I mean, you you can't really. I mean, I can't really imagine like an alternative literary history in which you know perfectly sane and sober Coleridge writes this poem, <laughs> and then trundles off to his publisher. I mean, there, there there is some way in which the fantastic account of its composition, in some way, give it gives it a boost, I guess. You know, right? Right. Well, know. you know what it reminds me of. Remember when Fifty Cent's first record came out? I know, I know, I marked myself as white <laughs> when I said fifty, but I can't, I can't speak in a black black patois. I mean, that'd be awful. When his first record came out, all anybody ever talked about was that he'd been shot nine times. Right, right. And I thought, ah, uh, yeah. Who, who cares? What, what mm. difference does that make to the music? Because I thought then, and I think now, that his music's just atrocious. <laughs> he's a bad rapper, but but because he got shot, he's authentic. And I wonder if what we have is because we know now that Samuel Taylor Coleridge used to drink laudanum and fall asleep and have fantastic dreams. It it validates him as a romantic poet in a way that he wouldn't otherwise be validated. Mm, mm-hmm. 
Well, and that, and that, I mean, well, we've got other questions. I mean, would would we uh, would we still be reading Shelley and Byron if they'd been, you know, conventional button-up dudes? Right. You know? Would we would we would we read uh, Keats if he hadn't died at twenty-five? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, would we read Sidney if he hadn't died young? Hmm. But but that's the invasion of a whole different period. <laughs> There's something about dying young that makes you. A romantic figure. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't think we're going to settle this today, gentlemen. Probably oh, well. not. <laughs> so we'll shift. Um, and we need to be kind of heading towards the exit, but not immediately, because there is one thing that I noticed on this on this reading um, that I hadn't noticed before, and that's that um, Coleridge repeats the word holy in this poem. Um, so I'm going to pitch that at you, Nathan. You are you are the arbiter of things holy. I shall make you so. Um, <laughs> okay. What a responsibility, Nathan. Indeed. Exactly. Can you make sense of how he's using this word? Because it seems to show up in some weird places. Well, once again, I you know when you sent me the show notes, I said that word's not in there, and I I had to go back to the text of the poem and hunt for it. Uh, and the first. In, uh, instance of the word holy there uh, in the second long stanza uh, is really something that you know reminds me of Wordsworth's poem The World is Too Much With Us uh, mm. this is the holiness that is of the like we talked about before the alien place the place that is forgotten the place that might have been a sacred shrine to some religion or some piety that we don't have access to anymore and in fact he calls it you know a savage place and then the point of comparison that he makes is as holy and enchanted as air beneath a waning moon was haunted by a woman calling for her demon lover so this is this is the old gods if you will uh this is something where you know the the gods are the ones who come and mingle with the mortals uh, it's the ones that Genesis frowns on immediately, but Ovid re- revels in. Uh, mm. These are, you know, this is a different sort of holiness than one finds in St. Paul's in London. Or or Jerry Bridges, for that matter. Yeah, indeed, indeed. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, when we get to the final instance of holy, which is in the uh, ante penultimate line, just because I like that word, uh, you know, <laughs> close your eyes with holy dread for he on honey do hath fed and drunk the milk of paradise. Again, the, the, the sense of holy there, uh, is not the sense of sort of an ethical separation from a corrupt order necessarily, but it is a separation that it's a function of alienness of terror, uh, of something that is so entirely distant from our experience that we can only stand away and note that it is that whatever is happening is not intelligible, but sublime. Mm. And that's a word that, you know, occurred to me really with both instances of holy here. It is something approaching what Edmund Burke or Immanuel Kant would describe as sublime, I think. Sure. So does this have any connection with Christian usage? I mean, Oh goodness. Can we talk about holy 
I mean, is, is this even approaching what <laughs> what we might conceive holy? I mean, here's to be? the thing: when I think of holy in the Christian tradition, I always think of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, uh, you know, and it's not even the word holy, but it's you know, uh, be perfect as your Father is perfect, uh, mm-hmm. which is an echo of the Levitical command to be holy as Yahweh is holy. And mm-hmm. I think that you know, I mean, there is such an ethical force to the Christian sense of holiness that it's hard for me to link it up with this sort of untouchable sublimity. This is not something that you could ever imitate. And if you would try to imitate, it would turn it into a farce. Mm -hmm. So I, I, you know, uh, David, you might be able to connect these. You might be able to square this circle. But when you, when you ask me that question, I I just think, I mean, these are two very, very different conceptions of the holy. Mm -hmm. Well, what about the burning bush account? Take off All your right, sandals. Run, run with it. Run with it. You know, take off your sandals. This is holy ground. Okay. Uh, and the idea that you know this this is the place in which you know rude shepherd Moses encounters encounters something that is completely outside of the ordinary, the natural, the expected. Something that is. Mm-hmm transcendent you know a bush that is on fire yet is not consumed and a voice that speaks from it all right all right all right and then you got your uh seraphim in isaiah 6 saying holy holy and holy uh you know which of course gets echoed in the apocalypse yeah i can see that i can see that and i guess i was thinking about it on one vector of holiness that's very Mm. ethical but i guess that other one is in there in the scriptural witness i had for some reason when i was prepping for this david i couldn't I couldn't bring myself around to that sense of it, but that does work. Well, I I, I don't know. I, I mean, maybe I mean, is that is that an issue that that frequently when we were thinking of you know the holiness of God and the kinds of holiness that we should also embody that we think of it in terms of ethical things and and kind of leave out that when we speak of holiness in terms of God, there might be other senses as well that we couldn't emulate. Yeah, but it, well, in what's well in that case, then why does Leviticus call on them to imitate the holiness of Yahweh? Oh, oh I, I don't. Say, I just set you up to go Calvinist, daggummit. <laughs> 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 I oh, I walked right into that, David. I, <laughs> blast! I it, it's like you're writing a philosophical dialogue, and I am Phaedrus. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna play out the dialogue. I'm not gonna make you say <laughs> you are so right, Plato. Yes, yes. Uh, or Socrates, sorry. <laughs> of course, Grubzatees. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, yes. I agree wholeheartedly. Yes, none other. Yes. Oh shoot. <laughs> well, I, I, I don't know, but it, it could even play into the Dantean, right? The idea that the ultimate vision of the good is also a kind of. Um, sublime beauty from from which mere sullied mortals um would shrink unless they are okay. prepared for all right it. all right yeah yeah i so, think that makes sense that makes sense i don't know <laughs> yeah not not that i want anybody to go out wailing for their demon lover um i'm i'm, I'm fairly certain that that's not going to fly right in, right and, uh, I, and i'll just note that I as, mean, as a just... youth group sermon <laughs> Yeah, there there is no actual demon lover in here. That is a point of comparison for the deep romantic ca- chasm. So in other yeah. words, the chasm is as holy as it would be if there were a woman wailing for her demon lover. 
Hmm. What a metaphor. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, and, you know, there there is no. Um, you mean, I mean, I guess there could be something Ovidian there, but I mean, it's really something that is just such a stark image that stands alone that if I knew there was some Germanic myth of the demon lover, you would take something away from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think we probably need to, to circle around for a landing. Um, and we've already kind of kind of made a stab at it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I would hesitate to call Kublai Khan theology. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, you know, it's led us around some topics that connect to or verge on the theological. Um, the stuff about holiness is primarily where I would go, um, primarily where I would go with it. Um, I think it would, you know, maybe, maybe do us a little good if when we thought about holiness, we thought not only about being very, very good, but also a little bit of beware, beware. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, I'll, I'll pitch it to you guys. Um, you know, make if we've been talking about things that connect or verge on the theological um Make some make some of those connections explicit and suggest what Kublai Khan might bring to a theological roundtable if it's that together with, I don't know, Luther over beer and laudanum. <laughs> Michael? Um, I, I, the, the connection between the poet and the prophet in this poem is very interesting to me, especially in the last, the last stanza you have. You, you, he says that, it, could I revive within me her symphony song? the song he hears from this Abyssinian maid, to such a deep delight twould win me that with music loud and long I would build that dome in air. So he, he, he would become this creator of spiritual things. He's able to build mm. the dome in air instead of out of ice or whatever. And, and then people, would, you know, as we've already quoted, say, beware, beware, his flashing eyes, his floating hair. Weave a circle round him thrice and close your eyes with holy dread. For he on honeydew hath fed and drunk the milk of paradise. So the poet becomes this, not only a prophet, but kind of a terrifying, infernal prophet. Mm. Not an uncommon image in, well, really anywhere in the history of poetry. Poetry and prophecy are always connected. But uh, mm-hmm. Coleridge has this unusual angle on it, given how threatening the poet-prophet seems to be in that final stanza. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And if you felt like that, and then you know there was someone walking around Jerusalem saying the kinds of things that a Jeremiah said, right, know. right. right. <laughs> we we forget how we forget how sinister the uh, Hebrew prophets are. Well, that's why they're getting tossed down wells and stuff. People are like, "Dude, you're scaring people." <laughs> Indeed. Nathan. Well, I was actually going to go to that last stanza, too, and I mean, what I would say is that, you know, this is one of those places where, you know, those images, you know, that are possibly not, yeah, I would say the most famous images in this in this poem, you know, the flashing eyes, the floating hair, the poet who has become divine. Uh, what's interesting about that to me is that if you look for the beginning of that poetic sentence, uh, it's could I revive within me her symphony and song, uh, and so I mean the implication there is that he cannot. You know what you are reading right now is not that thing that he wishes he could summon. Mm. Uh, so I mean I think that it is uh, a poem that definitely points to a lack rather than a potency in poetry. Uh, so I mean I you know it's one of those fascinating things that. Um, in this poem, you know, the power that 
Coleridge would summon here, you know, that is, you know, the power of the prophet is something he can't summon again. And moreover, you know, the place, uh, the romantic chasm, uh, like I said, there is no actual demon lover, but it is wholly as if it would be if there were a demon lover. So again, mm. what happens over and over in this poem is that it keeps pointing to what's not there. Uh, yeah. And I think that that negativity in here, uh, I'm not sure what to do with it theologically, David, but I feel like someone should do something with it. So where would you go? Oh, wow. oh I, I don't know. I, I already, already, you know, sort of my, my holiness thing was where I was going to take it. Okay. But, but that kind of deferral is is really really interesting you know it's like there is a possibility for this you know for this connection with the sublime that's 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 envisioned one as the woman wailing for the demon lover and that kind of connection and then as you know this sort of magical you know theophany poet <laughs> whatever you want to mm -hmm. call it um it seems as if the possibility of that is imagined, but this is not it, right? Right, but it, right. But maybe this is one of those moments where Coleridge's poetry is doing what Coleridge poetry is supposed to do and is saying, if, if this magical moment was real, this is what it would feel like. This is what you would feel like if you were in that moment where the sublime and the, the mundane met. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, I, that, that's 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 my stab. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, that was Kubla Khan. Um, Michael, you're up next. Yeah. Yep. And we will be doing Keats's Ode on a Grecian Urn. Glorious. Oh, happy, happy love. Yeah, you'll be getting that stanza. Don't worry, David. I'm so pumped. <laughs> All right. Well, if there's any uh, any questions or anything we've missed about Kublai Khan that that you really want to point out, or uh, any any other sorts of sorts of commentary, if uh, if Kyle Grimes happens to be listening and wants to you know uh, acknowledge his academic offspring or whatever, um, you can comment on the show notes when they post on ChristianHumanist.org/chb. Or uh, you can send us an email at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com or post on our Facebook wall as well. Uh, we are on the Facebook. Uh, in the meanwhile, uh, I wish you all the grandest of weeks, and I leave you with the wise, wise words of James Tiberius Kirk. Come!